Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Guillermo del Toro, as recommended by Sean Meehan, there you go, Sean. You're welcome for making up for mispronouncing your name last time. And this week's episode, uh, I'll be talking about Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. Um, and if you recall the conversation that I had uh, with Sean uh, in the introductory episode, um, you'll recall that when I saw Crimson Peak for the first time when it came out in theaters, I was not a big fan of it. And certainly revisiting or, or having a conversation with Sean and then planning to revisit Crimson Peak, I thought to myself, well, I really hope my opinion changes because it seemed like, based on the consensus uh, at the time, I was missing something. Um, now, keep in mind, though, I, I, I gave a little preamble uh, about why consensus and the, the uh, consensus opinion doesn't necessarily matter or does not make your opinion invalid. Um, I did get the sense when I first saw Crimson Peak that it was just, maybe I was missing something. And, and certainly I think I have explored and discussed and been open about this idea that I just was not engaging with the film on its own terms. I came in expecting one thing and Crimson Peak turned out to be something entirely different. And I was upset about that. That's not the film's fault. That's not Gabriel del Toro's fault. That, in that case, that's my fault, because I was not judging the film for what it was, but for what I wanted it to be. So, a few years removed now, revisiting Crimson Peak, and I have to say, I like this film much better the second time around. When I came in with sort of a clean palette, with sort of different perspective, I was engaging with it on its terms, and I liked it a whole lot more than I remember liking or disliking it the first time. Um, and, and I think on, on retrospecting, uh, retrospection uh, and, and trying to remember what my thoughts were when I walked out of the theater for that first time, I think my, my displeasure with it was really rooted in three main points. Um, my, or, or my three main complaints about the film were this, or these, I should say. Um, number one, everything was very on the nose. There was no real subtlety to it. Everything was really kind of in your face and over the top. Uh, number two, the scares weren't very scary to me. I remember being very disappointed in thinking that the, the film did not craft a good mood or, or, or tone, basically. And then number three, the performances and relationships didn't really work out for me. Some of that is certainly tied into point number one about things being too in-your-face or on-the-nose, and, and I'll talk about that later. Um, but those were kind of the three main points. And so how I want to structure this podcast is going through those three points and debunking them, or at least um, reconvincing my past self and or you, the listener, of why those three points are, um, upon retrospect, incorrect, or, or why uh, I, am, I am now uh, refuting them or going back on them, I guess. Basically, you know, this is the structure of the episode that I'm going to have is, is I'm, I'm, uh, I'm basically talking to my past self about why this is wrong. So come along for the ride listener. As I, 
uh, engage with Jim of uh, a few years ago and explain to him ever so um, politely and maybe with a little vulgarity as to why he uh, should re-examine his three main complaints. So let's start at the top. Number one, everything in Crimson Peak is on the nose. Duh! That's how things are supposed to be. Everything in Crimson Peak is supposed to be a little exaggerated, a little over the top, a little blatant, because Crimson Peak is a gothic horror. And when I first saw the film, I put the emphasis on horror, and I didn't pay any attention to gothic, which is incredibly stupid of me, or was incredibly stupid of me. Um, I admittedly am not an expert, not even an enthusiast of gothic literature of gothic horror, anything which has to do with the term gothic. I've never even listened to a Cure album in, in my entire life, but listen just to a little bit of the, the amateur sleuthing I've, I've done. Read Wikipedia, basically. Um, listen to some of the traits of, of gothic fiction, and you'll kind of see that Guillermo del Toro is pulling wholesale from this blueprint. I mean, uh, you have often the virginal maiden, um, sort of the, the evil villain, the tyrant, as they, as they describe it. Um, the hero, miraculous survivals. Um, those two things kind of connected a little bit with Charlie Hunnam's character, which I don't care for, but we'll get into, into that a little bit later. Um, and specific to American Gothic fiction um, is this, uh, this uh, a psychological overlay which is basically described as an element that is connected to how characters within an American Gothic novel are affected by things like the night and their surroundings. An example of this would be if a character was in a maze-like area and a connection was made to the maze that their minds represented. Now, there is no maze in Crimson Peak, but there certainly is a crumbling, bleeding, old house. Hmm, that sounds uh, like that could be a metaphor for something couldn't it? Uh, which also sort of ties into the, this idea of um, uh, the, how self-referential or self-aware um, Crimson Peak is as a film. Um, that, that all ties into the, this gothic nature of it, of sort of things being a little bit exaggerated and over the top. I mean, one of the things that we often associate with, with gothic literature or, or that sort of genre are castles are mansions of things which are very expressive of uh, a family's reputation of a financial status of just you kind of look at people's costumes and you immediately kind of get a sense of who they are as a person or at least who they're representing or projecting to be as a person which is certainly the root of one of the conflicts of Crimson Peak is that uh, the Tom Hiddleston character um, is not as wealthy as you would assume he is and in fact uh, they're, they're, the family is not explicitly on the verge of bankruptcy, but they are certainly doing their nefarious deeds because they are trying to inherit a fortune in order to keep the, the sharp name and the sharp family going. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I did love and appreciate this time around how Crimson Peak, from the very beginning, forecasts what kind of story it's going to be. It's not even subtle about it. Um, Del Toro, from the very beginning, I mean, even if you just look at 
Um, Mia Wasikowska, her character's name is Edith Cushing. Cushing, of course, is a reference to Peter Cushing, um, who was, some of you may know him as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, but also before that, he had had a long tradition of being in old Hammer horror films, you know, uh, from the Hammer Studio, which operated mostly in, like, in Britain in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, in which he was often um, the heroic kind of Van Helsing character to Christopher Lee's Count Dracula. But that name even just kind of immediately symbolizes or evokes some type of significance or historical context or a legacy basically i mean it's right there edith cushing on the page like this is the kind of story we're going to be and that extends to even how edith talks about herself um specifically her her writing basically um she writes a ghost story which no one seems to find very scary and she said well the ghosts are just metaphors and there happens to be a love story in it as well crimson peak is a story in which the ghosts are just metaphors and there happens to be a love story as well it's right there it labels it from the very beginning and i love that it's basically kind of telling you right from the get-go this is the kind of film where this is going to be you're either on board with it or you're not and when i first saw it I was not on board with it. And now that I'm watching it again, I was fully on board with it. And because I was engaging with it on its own terms, I'm able to appreciate a lot more. I'm able to find humor in the fact that it's basically kind of saying like, ah, ah, this is what we're going to do. And then two hours later, like, it does it. Of course, we told you that was going to happen. Um, I, uh, you know, like, like a, and, and even Edith as a writer, um, being made fun of by the the kind of snooty women in in the, the city of Buffalo, um, how how there's this delightful little exchange at the beginning where one of these snooty older women kind of says like, oh, it's our it's our very own Jane Austen, but Jen, didn't D Jane Austen die a spinstress? Um, and they sort of get a ha little chuckle about it because like, oh, you're going to die alone and poor, and no one's going to have read or appreciated your work. And her response is. Um, I prefer to be Mary Shelley. She died a widow. And, uh, of course, later on in the film, when it all wraps up, <laughs> Edith has died a widow. Not just that, but this is something that, uh, my girlfriend pointed out to me because we were watching it together, that, um, the allusion to Mary Shelley is not just clever because of how she does end up, uh, a widow, but also because... Mary Shelley was this author who obviously, of course, wrote this very important, uh, wonderful genre piece in Frankenstein, but Mary Shelley's husband, whose name is now escaping me, and I'm not going to look it up, uh, Mary Shelley's husband, because nowadays people are far often known as, like, the wife of such and such, so I'm, I'm gonna subvert that a little bit and just say Mary Shelley's husband, um... Though it can never be confirmed, rumors of an incestuous relationship with his sister followed him around most of his life, if not his entire life. So, we have a story here in Crimson Peak in which the woman says, I'd rather end up Mary Shelley, a widow, married to someone around whom stories of incest had followed their entire life. Once again, this is broadcasting exactly what's going to happen in this movie, and I love it, and I appreciate that. Um, there's something wonderful about uh, a, a film which 
is so campy. And if you think of something which is camp or pulpy, there's sort of a a, a superficial appeal, uh, which is basically just to say that not that Crimson Peak is a hollow film, but that um, it doesn't stand for something bigger than just the this the universe or the world that it's created. Um, certainly in stuff like The Devil's Backbone, as, as I discussed last week, and in other films of that in Del Toro's resume, such as Pan's Labyrinth, um, such as The Shape of Water, it is uh, they speak towards something which is um, a little bit larger, whether it's social or whether it's political or whether it's something about the horrors of, of, of humanity, which I think this film does certainly touch on a little bit. Um, there, those things sort of exist as subtext and context, and I don't think that that exists within Crimson Peak, which is not to, which I, I don't say to the film's detriment. The fact that instead we're just sort of, that Del Toro has just sort of created this world, and literally when it comes to the, the mansion or, or the hall that uh, the Sharps live in, literally created this world for our characters and for us to just kind of delight in and, and, and live in and not really have to look at, well, what is this saying about the larger world? What is this saying about the Spanish Civil War? Or what is this saying about del toro's thoughts on monsters and humanity but just instead we have this fun gothic horror film that it just kind of exists to sort of scare us and titillate us for a little bit and then kind of gets out i can really appreciate that especially on the second time around um it's absolutely wonderful i i mean when when we have these these motifs and these metaphors of like the moths and the butterflies well obviously Lucille is the moth and obviously Edith is a butterfly like all that stuff is is there and just sort of reinforcing the world that it's set up to to play in I really love that the second time around I really love the fact that I could just sort of exist uh within this genre world that is this this incredibly vibrant luscious genre world i mean the production design i you know it's fucking stunning um i i love that del toro is being so self-aware uh, meta and self-referential i think it, it adds to a persona or 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 yeah it adds to that persona of him being sort of jovial of him being a little bit whimsical um much more aligned with his, uh, you know, his constituent uh, Alfonso Cuaron more so than um, Inyaritu. Um, like I said, it, it just the story labels itself from the beginning. It, it's it's not trying to surprise you. It's trying to scare you. It's trying to scare you, or or, or not. I'm sorry. I, I just misread my notes here. The film is not trying to surprise you. Everything in the film is instead trying to warn you. At the end, what we don't get is a twist. At the end, what we get is a reveal. It was there the whole time. It even told us that it was there, and we're sort of looking for something that's like, look right in front of you. It's been here the entire time. The film is trying to warn you, just like the ghosts are trying to warn Edith. From the very beginning, we have the ghost of Edith's mother telling her, beware of Crimson Peak. Um, and I was actually reminded of of, uh, of the Edgar Allan Poe uh, short story, but also the, the film adaptation of The Fall of House of Usher. Um, and I don't know why that didn't occur to me the very first time, but I, I was really kind of seeing, um, I don't know if it was intentional, but sort of wholesale allusions or borrowings or, or parallels to this story of um, this 
decaying, dying house standing as a physical representation of this family line, which itself is decaying and dying from the inside and in danger of being eliminated off the face of the planet. And in the end, it being beneficial that this family is allowed to die out. Um, and I sort of love that. Once again, it's like it's Del Toro's wearing all of his influences, everything that he loves. He's wearing them on his on his sleeve. He's sharing them with you. He's putting them out there into the world. And he's saying, like, this is what this story is. You can come along or not, but I certainly hope you do because I love this and I hope you love it too. And the second time around kind of kept picking up on that right away and buying into it allowed me to enjoy this film um, a lot more. So... And I mentioned Edith's uh, mom, the ghost of Edith's mom, which shows up at the beginning. So that's a good transition into uh, point number two, or, or complaint number two of Past Jim, in which the scares weren't very scary. And all I can say to that is, what the fuck was wrong with me? Um, the scares in this film are wonderful. They're so wonderfully well done. Um, if I'm being honest with myself, I think what my complaint may have been when I first saw the movie was that I was just upset that Del Toro was using CGI. Um, these ghosts are very CGI heavy, though, of course, one has to realize that, yes, they are kind of, uh, they're, they're fleshed out in CGI, but, you know... In order for that to happen, first there had to be the performance of Doug Jones, who portrays um, Edith's mother, and I believe I believe he portray he is the the motion capture figure for all of the ghosts. But I know at the very least he's Edith's mother, and he's that very first one that we see um, when Edith is taking the bath. So that there had to be a physical performance first. There had to be something tangible first around which the CGI could be crafted. Um, but I think I was just so upset when I was seeing it because. Uh, everything Del Toro had done after that point had been so practical. Um, sure, there was a, a lot of CGI in, in Hellboy, but there was a lot of practical work that was done as well, starting with Ron Perlman's costume and character, and then even those, uh, the demon dogs, which are the name of which are escaping me, but a lot of times those are practical as well. And then, of course, you had the troll market in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, which I did not love that movie, but I, of course, loved the troll market, as everybody did because of how fantastic it was of course he then did uh pacific rim which is basically entirely cg creations but that doesn't really matter that's neither here nor there but I, I think i was just upset with the fact that there was this guy who had expressed such a love of genre films of monsters of old hollywood stuff that i was like i, I guess i felt maybe he was kind of selling out uh, by doing CGI, which is incredibly stupid, because you need the CGI in order for his ghost to exist as they are, which is, just like in The Devil's Backbone, a product of the environment in which they died. Um, you know, they, they, uh, the, the ghost of the, uh, I believe it's the mother who's, who's in the tub with the, the, the cleaver in her forehead, and you see, uh, the blood, uh, kind of floating up just like Santi uh, uh, was in The Devil's Backbone where you see it's, it's almost as though she is submerged in water and of course all the ghosts with the exception of Edith's mother are just blood red. The only things in this movie which are red are the ghosts um, because they reflect uh, this metaphor that is Crimson Peak, that is this family, that is the evil and just rotten to the core nature of who this family is and the ghosts are the metaphor for that just like of course 
Edith in the film told us they would be. Um, and um, to say that the scares aren't scary is just, in my opinion, blatantly not true. And I was, uh, I, I was thinking as I was watching this movie about how del toro has crafted the the scares or the reveals of the ghosts in this movie versus the reveal of the ghost in uh the devil's backbone and if you recall from that episode the way that he shoots uh santi's big reveal at the very beginning is through camera movement but through camera movement which is kind of signaling to you you should not be afraid don't be scared um there's actually um a, a sort of not a playfulness but there's there's a the way that he reveals Santi, like I said, with that moving camera kind of coming behind the pillar where Santi is hiding, you see him in full view. You see him standing there. It's almost as though he's hiding from Carlos just as much as Carlos is hiding from him. In fact, in that beginning scene, Carlos isn't really hiding from him. Carlos is looking for him. Carlos is curious, and Santi is the one who is almost as though he's the one that is hesitant about things. Um, and then that hallway scene like i said if not for carlos being terrified we wouldn't be terrified either because the way that he uses camera positioning and editing in that sequence signals to us with everything this is not scary or you should not be a, you should not be afraid of this child of this spirit it's i don't want to say it's the opposite in crimson peak but the, he's certainly employing different tricks to reveal the ghost to you think about the very first one with edith's mom revealing herself um we have Edith alone in her bedroom at night, of course, and he has these camera movements, which um, moving the camera is always a, a, a simple but effective way of unsettling an audience. Um, I'm not thinking this, or I'm not, this is not an original thought of mine, I'm actually stealing this from the Nerd Writer. Um, the Nerd Writer is a wonderful uh, film critic who has a, uh, or film analyst who has a channel on YouTube, and I'm borrowing this from his, um, his piece on why Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is the best installment of the Harry Potter franchise, which I agree with. I'll post that video uh, on the Facebook page, but he's basically, uh, he kind of speeds up uh, the opening sequence in, in, the, in the Hogwarts Great Hall where every single shot has a camera movement and it sort of unsettles you, which is different from saying it disturbs you. It doesn't disturb you, but by constantly moving, by never settling down, it kind of makes you a little bit uneasy and like, okay, what's going on here there's something going on here because i can't just sit and watch the 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 camera is always making me an active participant in the movie here and that's what del toro was doing when edith's mom appears for the first time she's sitting in her room but there's these little slight camera movements and the, and the way that the camera is positioning specifically outside her bedroom kind of makes it seem like there's something there watching her when it, whether it's i can't remember if the camera's moving out or pushing in but the fact that it's observing her and moving at the same time just kind of signals to you there is something here there is something happening and then sure enough what you don't see is you don't see Edith's mother's hand what you see instead is the shadow of her hands on the wall off in the distance you kind of see that there's something there but it's not revealing itself right away and he uses um jump uh jump scares and he uses the loud soundtrack he's very much is trying to scare you but not to be mean-spirited, but because these ghosts are warnings. These ghosts are trying to grab the attention of both the protagonist and of us. They're trying to signal that there is danger up ahead. Um, it is, once again, um, De Del Toro is revisiting or exploring this theme of 
not that this is horrific, not that these spirits are horrific, but what they represent, which is the horrors of other people, that is what we should be afraid of. Because all these ghosts, with the exception of Edith's mother, of course, all these ghosts that we encounter are ghosts because the Sharps killed them first. So they are warnings. They are not trying to scare us because of who they are, but they're trying to scare us because of what caused them to be lingering. And so what you get are these menacing, hideous-looking things, not because when they were alive they were hideous, but because their fate or their circumstances made them hideous. And so you have these ghosts which are very skeletal and horrific with no eyes and no mouth, and you have that that opening scare with Edith's mother when you have just that those long... Uh, pointed fingers just sort of slowly wrapping around her, her Edith's arm it's it's all horrifying and it should be horrifying because what caused them to be like that is horrifying these are not vengeful spirits that are lingering because in life they were evil and now they are going to uh, torment those who are living because they want everyone to suffer as they are it's warnings for the future uh, which is seems to be something that Del Toro is very big on between um, Edith's mother saying, beware of Crimson Peak, even though Edith's mother did not die in Crimson Peak. Um, but you have her as, you know, you, you sort of have this this hint that uh, in, in the afterlife or the supernatural element kind of adds this, this um, prognostication or this kind of all-knowing quality some way so beware of crimson peak just like with santi in the devil's backbone you had him saying many of you will die um it's just it, it's a it's a forecast it's a warning of something terrible that is going to happen because their existence is now rooted in something terrible that caused them to be ghosts um and i want to go back to this idea of how the only red in the entire movie comes from the ghost, or, or, or the ghosts are the only thing which are red, aside from uh, the, the clay at Crimson Peak, of course. But there's no items, there's no physical items, there's no furniture, there's no doors, there's no trinkets, there's no uh, costume, which is red. Red is the only thing, or red is only represented in the spirits, because they are, of course, um, a metaphor for the, the evil and the hideousness of uh, the house and the family itself. Um, and so I want to use that to kind of talk about the color palette because it's a um, a visually lush and wonderful film. It's a sumptuous feast for the eyes watching Crimson Peak. Um, and a lot of that um, is credited to um, the DP. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but Dan Laustsen. Um, it's L-A-U-S-T-S-E-N. The, the, the S is sandwiching that T kind of make it a little bit uh, difficult for me to pronounce, but I believe it's Dan Laustsen. Um, this was his first time working with Guillermo Toro, and he would eventually go on to work with him again uh, with Shape of, uh, Shape of Water, and he would get an Oscar nomination for his cinematography on that film. But um, I love Guillermo Navarro. I love Guillermo Navarro's work and, and the work that he's done with Guillermo Toro. He won the, the Oscar for Best Cinematography for Pan's Labyrinth um, in 2007, which broke my heart a little bit because um, I really wanted Emmanuel Lebeski to win for Children of Men, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Guillermo Navarro's work is wonderful, but there's a, a certainly a, a darkness to it, um, a darkness that I think would not have worked for Crimson Peak, because once again, though it's a gothic horror, it is not 
Guillermo del Toro is not trying to make it a dark, horrific tale. He's there. there I don't want to say there's there's a fairy tale quality to Crimson Peak, but there is sort of maybe a little bit of an element of that. I mean, I mean, certainly there's something kind of Alice-like um, when Edith is sitting in that that chair, that oversized chair with those huge wings, which sort of once again re reinforce this idea of the. Um, uh, of her being the butterfly, but also kind of a, a chair that you could tell was sort of made extra large to make her appear rather small inside of it. There is sort of kind of that that uh, a dark fairy tale sort of, of feel to it. Um, but the the two colors that were really at play uh, with each other in The Devil's Backbone were blue and orange. And certainly how I, I talked about there, how blue was sort of a calming and unifying color and orange was the one that was signifying the the the, the badness. I mean, um, with uh, Jacinto's uh, first scene at night um, and then, of course, with the bombs dropping. And, and, and you, I, I'd say you, you have... I don't want to say you don't have that, but you have instead this vibrant color spectrum. I mean... Every color is basically represented in this film, sometimes within single shots or single scenes. And I'll post a screenshot of what I'm talking about in Crimson Peak, or I'm sorry, in Crimson Peak. On the Facebook page, I will post a screenshot that I am talking about where you can kind of see it, how you see basically, and it's even from like the left to the right of how the colors sort of, there's a color spectrum kind of moving. You have on the left, you have... Um, I forgot her name, so I'm going to look it up. Lucille, that's what it is. Lucille standing in front of the fireplace, so she is bathed in this orange light. But then as uh, your eye moves across the image and you kind of see Edith over on the end, she is kind of blue and gray. And in between, you kind of see a, a yellow and a green. And you, see, and you see the color kind of transitioning. This is a very colorful film, even at night. Um, the night scenes are shot in such a way where you can see everything which is happening. You, you know, uh, Dan Lawson talked about how he didn't want to, they didn't want to make the, the nighttime scenes dark. They wanted you to see everything. And I have um, a quote here from Dan Lawson um, from uh, pushingpixels.org. I will, I will also post this full article. It's an interview on the Facebook page as well. But So bear with me here while I read it. He said, um, and this is sort of him talking about collaborating with Del Toro on, on the, the look and how to shoot the film. It was it was shot on digital, um, and he talks about how he likes that because of the versatility and specifically how you can see things in the dark better. But he said, When I got the screenplay, I had some ideas about how I saw it. Then I met with Guillermo, and we watched some movies together with the production designer Thomas Sanders, talking about how it should look. We had a lot of discussions about how to shoot that movie. But it was easy because we agree about everything related to shadows, light sources, key lights, etc. You talk about colors and movement, but you're in very much the same boat from the beginning. It wasn't difficult for us to get there. The movie looks pretty much exactly as we thought about it when we started. A lot of camera movements, single source lights, and shadows of the faces were there from the beginning, and we didn't change them much in post-production. We were very clear about the colors from the beginning, with warm key lights and steel blue during the nighttime. Um, so that's fascinating to me on a technical level because basically how you see the film is essentially how it looked. These days, uh, the colorists are just as important to, as the DP sometimes, if not more important. And so you have Dan Lawson here is kind of saying like, no, that color scheme, the way that colors are going to play with each other, the way that uh, the candelabra that Edith is holding as she walks through um, you know, the, the halls at night and how you saw those oranges really kind of make her stand out amongst the darkness. That was all there. What you're seeing is 
was there from the very beginning. There's there's not a lot of tweaking um, being done with that. Um, and of course, the cinematography wouldn't work as well if not for the wonderful production design by Thomas Sanders, um, he, who we mentioned in the article. Thomas Sanders passed away in 2016, um, but he was a, an Oscar-nominated production designer. Uh, the two films that he got, uh, he was nominated for was Saving Private Ryan and, most relevant to this movie, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which is also a um, a gothic horror film um, adapted from a, 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 a gothic piece of or a piece of gothic literature, I should say, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it almost kind of seemed natural that he was a natural fit for this. And, and I mean, the design that the interior of that house was specifically designed and built in a studio. And it's a, a tragedy, as Sean says, that they had to tear that thing down, but they eventually had to. Um, but it is wonderful how you see all these colors kind of representative, but then also how you see the visual pairings because from the very beginning um, Lucille and Thomas mirror each other in their costumes and I even find it, found it kind of fascinating how Edith's costume even sort of changed as well um, at, the, at the beginning when she first comes to Crimson Peak she's wearing very bright colors um, yellows and that sort of thing and, and uh, I, I believe there's a green dress in there but then near as the film goes along those colors get muted a little bit and specifically there's a scene when they come back from the post office after they've uh, had sex for the very first time Edith is actually wearing a top coat uh, which is gray and blue and very much more in line with the colors that Thomas is wearing than the ones that she's worn before and in fact that top coat is coloring a very bright vibrant yellow dress it's almost kind of symbolic of how um, this family is sort of taking over her it's actually quite wonderful and of course it's important to note that this color, that this film is only very vibrant and colorful when they're in the gothic horror setting, which is the giant mansion, the you know the 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 thing that you would expect to see, the setting you would expect to see or, or hear about in a gothic setting. Um, when they're in Buffalo, uh, the color scheme is is very uniform, but it's not a blue. It's actually kind of a, a brown and orange. I re- I was reminded of Rust. And, and the thing that I, that I kind of picked up on it, or maybe that I project on it, was this idea of Buffalo, the bustling city of industry, and Crimson Peak out in the English countryside. Um, that contrast between the machines of industry and the, the romantic English gothic countryside, basically. I kind of saw it as um, del Toro sort of looking down or, or, or sort of having a cynical view towards industry, towards machines, towards this ever-moving-forward cranking gears of industry that would destroy nature, that would create muddy streets, that would basically um, sort of break down the beauty of nature, the colors within nature. That's kind of how I saw it, and I found that to be um, incredibly fascinating. I think it's also very fun to point out how uh, the ghosts of Santi uh, and Thomas are basically the same in their design. Uh, the black eyes, the head wound that has sort of the blood kind of floating and leaking out of it. The design was very, very similar, and I, f- I found that to be completely fascinating. So we've debunked the first point, we've debunked the second point, and now the third and final point that past Jim brought up was that the performances and the relationships just didn't really work. And I'll be honest with you, past Jim, I kind of agree with you on this one. This is a a critique that I think still has some validity to me, um, or for me, I should say, Um, with the exception, well, not with the exception. Here's the thing. Tom Hiddleston, I think, is wonderful. I think he's absolutely wonderful. Um, 
it's hard to play that character because he is um, someone that we like at first or that we're um, to believe we're supposed to like, but then is someone that obviously is also nefarious or evil and yet we still have to have some type of sympathy or connection to him or else the reveal of the uh, incestuous relationship just it makes it makes the entire film crumble if we don't kind of like the thomas sharp character um i remember complaining okay before i get into that i should say and i think tom hiddleston does that very well and i think he does it better than the man who he replaced would have. Because initially it was Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone cast in the leads of this. Cumberbatch dropped out for reasons that um, no one really seems to know about. Um, it is rumored that perhaps um, he dropped out when he found out that Jessica Chastain's character was going to be his sister rather than his wife. Maybe he had some problem with that. But uh, allegedly when he was asked, he said, ask uh, Guillermo, he'll tell you. Um, so no one really knows, and then Emma Stone had to drop out because of scheduling conflicts, and in their place are Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Jessica Chastain did not replace Emma Stone. Mio Wasikowska replaced Emma Stone. And um, I think on one hand, with Tom Hiddleston replacing Benedict Cumberbatch, I think that was a wonderful move, because I think Hiddleston does a fantastic job in balancing between that fine line of, like, we need to like this character, but also this character is so had at the same time in in his past and what he's done he's lied to and been responsible for a, a co-conspirator in the murder of three women that we know of um up to this point um he is a bad person and yet we are still kind of heartbroken when he is killed at the end um especially in the manner in which he's killed by the by his sister who allegedly loves him so much um, and I think Jessica Chastain is wonderful. Jessica Chastain has seems like she's having such a fun job just chewing the scenery in this movie. She is great. Of course, as I, as past Jim said, um, this doesn't work because she's too evil. She's too transparent. Of course she's too transparent. That's what she's supposed to be. She is the tyrant. She is the villain. And she has so much fun playing it. I found it to be completely wonderful. Um, but what I don't think works, first and foremost is the relationship between Edith and Thomas. And I think that's because I don't think that Mia Wasikowska is a bad actress by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think she was right for this part because I don't believe that there's any connection between the two of them because I don't think there's any chemistry between her and Tom Hiddleston. Um, I certainly do get the sense that Tom Hiddleston is attracted to her, uh, or, or at least if not, then he was putting on airs and then eventually did start falling in love with her that I definitely pick up on it definitely seems like he is superficial and um basically lying at the beginning but then I do see him gradually eventually falling for her until at the very end um when he when she's like um you lied to me yes you've been poisoning me yes you tried to kill me yes but uh, you said you love me yes and I do I believed that. I believed that because of Tom Hiddleston. But I didn't really believe Mia Wasikowska in this movie. Um, I didn't really believe her fear. I didn't really believe at all that she was attracted to him. And so that relationship didn't really work for me. Um, and then, of course, we have to get to the elephant in the room, which is, as I talked about in the introductory episode, Charlie Hunnam. What the hell is Charlie Hunnam doing in this movie? And what the hell is he doing with his accent? Now, uh, um, 
if I remember correctly, uh, Charlie Hunnam's character, who he plays um, Dr. Alan McMichael, who I guess is supposed to be the hero of this movie, or at least he does come um, and uh, if he doesn't directly rescue Edith, at least he is somewhat responsible for their plan unfra- actually no he's fucking useless in this movie um his edith could have taken care of herself she was she was taking care of herself she caught on to the fact that she was being poisoned she stopped drinking the tea she's the one who stabs lucille she's the one that gets herself out um charlie hunnam is useless in this movie he's completely useless and on top of that he is um presenting to us an accent which can't make up his mind whether it wants to be English or whether it wants to be American. And now, if I'm trying to give Charlie Hunnam credit, I do believe that his character had just come back from spending a long time in England, but I'm not interested in in giving credit to Charlie Hunnam, so I'm just going to say he does a bad job in this movie and I don't know why he is even in it. So, of all the the past grimps, I I was trying to come on grimaces and gripes and it came up with grimps. Um, but it doesn't. That doesn't work because grimaces is not even the word that I should have been using. Of all the past gripes that past Jim had, the one which has a little bit of validity, which I think still to this day is that um, the performances and the relationships don't really work. Um, I know some people have mixed feelings about Emma Stone. I think I would have loved to see her in this movie. Uh, I, but I must admit, I have sort of a fondness for her, so I can see if you disagree with me. But um, I do think she probably would have at least clicked a little bit better with Tom Hiddleston than Mia Wasikowska does. Um, but even that kind of stuff is minor because I think everything else in this film works so wonderfully well. I, I was a much bigger fan of Crimson Peak the second time around. I'm so glad, Sean, that you recommended it to me. I'm so glad that I revisited it, and I'm so glad that I appreciate it now better than past Jim did. So um, hopefully all of you um, are uh, are on board with that, that you kind of agree with me. Uh, of course, if you don't, I always love to hear from you. And um, all three of these things that I talked about, the, the video from the nerd writer, the uh, screen grab from the film, and the article interview with Dan Lawson, I will post all of those on the Facebook page. So continue coming back uh, to the Facebook page for I Do Movies Badly and just kind of checking up on that because I... Always am trying to add some supplemental stuff there to make it a little bit more of an interesting experience. So, um, what did you think of this episode, of this film? Uh, do you agree with me about uh, Crimson Peak? Um, do you, or, or, or are you aligned with past Jim? What are your thoughts? I always want to hear uh, what your thoughts are, and that's easy enough to convey to me. You can just email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Um, you can leave comments on any things that I post on the Facebook page. You can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly um, on iTunes. You can go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com or you can go to battleshippretension.com. Um, click on I Do, Mo- uh, I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu and you can find um, back episodes there. Um, and if you want, you can also follow me on Twitter. I don't know why you'd want to. But it's uh, Nolan Fixes Teeth, as in imagine Christopher Nolan being your dentist, and that is my Twitter handle, Nolan Fixes Teeth. So I had a lot of fun with uh, revisiting this episode. I had a lot of fun with (laughs) revisiting this episode. I had a lot of fun revisiting this movie, and I had a lot of fun with this episode. I hope you did as well. So um, there is, of course, only one week left uh, in Camel Toro Month in the first month of bringing my podcast back. Um, which makes me a little bit sad uh, because I've been having a lot of fun with these two films. But, of course, all good things must come to an end. So 
Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be wrapping up Guillermo del Toro by covering his feature film debut and Spanish language film Kronos, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 